I'm delighted to bring you my second podcast interview with the current pensions minister, for which he kindly found a few minutes in between his myriad responsibilities and preoccupations, both personal and professional. Guy was in characteristically forthright form. I hope you enjoy the discussion. You've been happy to put some stuff up on Twitter, so you know you shared some of your personal news. So, and I know a lot of people are interested about this. In fact, Henry Tapper was blogging about this. Not Henry Tapper blogs about a lot of stuff, but I mean, and some of it's pretty good. He does, he Henry, does. Yeah. But he he did blog about this as well. So let me just ask you on the personal front, because I know you guys have been on a bit of a journey. How are mother and it's Christopher, isn't it? Kitto, Christopher. Yeah. How how so, are mother and child? Tell uh, us about that to start with. So thank you for asking. And we are all good. We've had a long, long journey to this destination. We are day 29, which is great. A mother and child have both had to go back into hospital post-birth and post-discharge from the maternity hospital. But we are in better place now. He was born quite young for a variety of reasons, because he's an IVF child and Flora has some complexities. And we are in a good shape. You didn't ask about the father who is grappling with fatherhood at a late age and but also grappling with a lack of sleep and is obviously if the performance in this podcast is in any way there's some sort of rating system and I underperform I'm going to blame Christopher and uh, he's called Kitto for a reason because we, his full name is Christopher obviously we liked Kit as a short version of that and as my name is Opperman everybody he will be called oh, Kitto yeah. and then it yeah. became double T-O in, in, in Flora's tummy and when we were chatting about him we, we he got that nickname and the nickname has stuck to be honest and it's nice and quirky and individual and Flo in particular likes individual quirky names i like it and to your other point as a as a parent of children myself i mean look it's no point in asking about the father we are as you know the bottom of the pecking order now somewhere somewhere just behind the dog i think is, is oh is, uh, listen if this house burns down i am the last to be saved yeah. the child first Zola very close behind because Zola has kept the two of us sane and alive and happy in the last two years and is a surrogate child in all but name and certainly is spoiled in that way. But so, yeah, I will be the last to be saved. Yeah, yeah, that's how it goes. Okay, on to, I was going to say professional matters, but I'm not sure that's quite the way. Anyway, let's talk about pensions. So we've got Pensions Awareness Week coming up, an extended Pensions Awareness Day. We've got a whole week of it now. I've just been interested. There's been quite a lot of chatter just in the last few days about, well, is this a good thing now? You know, if we tell people they're in a pension, the first thing they're going to do is opt out at this point, cost of living crisis and all of that. So first of all, interested in your thoughts around that question of opt outs and cost of living and whether we should even be talking to people about pensions at the moment. And then also interested in your thoughts around the Pensions Awareness Week more positively and optimistically, perhaps. So there is a golden rule in politics that now is not the right time to do stuff. You know, I've done this job for 12 years. I've been a minister for seven and five of which have been at pensions. And you're always told, well, now is not quite the right time to do this or that or t'other. You just have to carry on and you have to start conversations. You have to consult. You have to do things as if you are in the middle of a normal time. So if I give you an example, I did the probably the biggest pensions act, certainly for the last 10 years, in my view, in the Pension Schemes Act in 2021, all the way through COVID. And 
all the way through a general election. You know, it took me three years to get it over the line, but we did that during, all during that time. And, you know, I was shielding, but also running the act while shielding. And so you, you have to keep going as a minister. That None of that sort of stuff should distract from you. The second bit is it is entirely right to talk about what are in reality delayed savings. That's what a pension is. It's savings by another form. And having a conversation with the great British public about the importance of savings and saving for the longer term, it seems to me, particularly in a DC world, is entirely appropriate. And all we're asking people to do is pay the pension some attention. Now, it's not my campaign, I stress. So it is very much the campaign run by the PLSA and the ABI, but it is something which I support. And anything that gets people more engaged with their pension is a good thing in my view. Now, you know and I know that I have fought this campaign for pension engagement mm. fairly robustly for some considerable time. And I genuinely believe that we need the consumer, our constituents, more engaged with saving. That has got to be the case. And in a, a DC world, particularly in a complex DC world, which this world definitely is, that is utterly important. And this is the start. You know, is this particular campaign perfect in all its form? Is it fully formulated? Is it all singing or dancing? No, it's not. It is. There will be hits and misses. There'll be bits that people say, oh, that was really good, or this is not so good. But we have a effectively a season. And it's a pension awareness season that starts with Pensions Awareness Week, ends with Talk Money Week. So that's a couple of months' time where there are a whole series of events talking about pensions. Now, it seems to me from the industry point of view, that's a really good thing. From a consumer point of view, that's a really good thing. From a governmental point of view, this is, you know, pensions are one of the great British success stories. And I am genuinely contacted once every month by countries from Croatia to China who want to learn lessons from us. And, you know, I was meant to be going to China in uh, literally three weeks' time to go and meet with my opposite number about helping them to reform their pension system. Now, as a result of that, it seems to me there's nothing negative about this whatsoever. It is entirely right that default savings are the key to automatic enrollment success, but that has to have a transition period. And we're in that transition period where it is an awareness that you have default savings is relatively limited, but at the same stage, an awareness that decisions are coming down the track is going to become more and more important. Now, we're in that transition period. I'm the minister that has shepherded automatic enrollment up to 8%, hopefully takes it a bit further, but also isn't somebody who's trying to get people more engaged. So I'm fully supporting of it, and I don't run it, but I'm fully behind it, and we'll be doing lots of things to support it. I know I met with the pensions awareness team from PLSA and ABI literally a couple of days ago and sat, you know, they've got some ideas, they've got some comms people, they've got some outside help, they've thrown some money at it. Great. Let's do it this year and we're going to do it every year. Yeah, yeah. And look, I couldn't agree with you more. And I noticed uh, Robert Cochran over at Scottish Widows was tweeting about various videos he's been recording and so on. So I, I, look, I agree with you. I think it's great to see. I think also post pension freedom, the world we live in now, you can't just default people all the way through. There are points which people do have to make choices and decisions, and we have to help them do that. And I think, well, so listen, I spoke to Nick Sherry, who I have a lot of time for, and David Harris and various of the Australian experts, and all of their advice was, 
the more engagement you have as your automatic enrollment developments, the better. And, you know, I've been spending the summer when I've had some sleep and could think clearly that one of the great deficiencies of the British automatic enrollment system is it's not badged. It doesn't exist as a thing. Whereas the Australian, my super really does exist. A 401k really does exist. 401k, I should say, sorry. So in Australia and in America, your savings plan for the longer term is something that everybody knows about. Everyone knows what a 401k is. Everyone knows what their my super is. And they know what's in their super. That's the key thing. And we don't have that. So my takeaway would be we probably need to badge what automatic enrollment is. You know, what are we going to say? It's my DC pot. That doesn't, you know, it's, that's nothing. You know, we want consolidation. We want everybody understanding what they've got and then making decisions and planning for the longer term. And it ties in with midlife MOT and it ties in with so much else. And I was just trying to answer your point about, you know, we shouldn't be talking about pension awareness when people are strapped for cash and when we've got things like the announcement on enhanced energy bills coming our way and, you know, change of government and the extent to which government is going to step in and assist people on an ongoing basis. I disagree. We should be making sure that people are aware that they've got savings and that they are doing the right thing by putting some money aside. Well, no, I absolutely agree with you. And I was just just trying to play devil's advocate a, a little bit there because these concerns have been expressed. Look, two things you've mentioned there. I want to come onto pension dashboard in a moment, but I think there's a, there's, there's a natural continuation onto the midlife MOT, which again, I know is something that you've had the department working actively on. So just give us an update there. What's happening with the midlife MOT? What are your expectations? And also what can the got to stop asking multiple questions at once but i'm going to do it anyway since i've started what what's the industry's role in all of this industry's role is massive and they're not doing enough genuinely that's a big deficiency i'll come to a reason why so my expectations of this is very significant and in my view in 5 10 15 years time this will be one of the biggest interventions that takes place in the workplace and in the evolution of your professional career and it will build on the auger report on lifelong learning. It'll build on a whole bunch of stuff and flexible working, all of that stuff. So my expectations of this is that, you know, you and I have discussed before, changing government policy takes a lot of time, tremendous amounts of heavy lifting, consultation, pilot projects, uh, and proper, you know, evolution of policy. So I've worked on the midlife MOT on and off for the last four or five years. And there's no doubt sometimes it, it went to the back burner slightly and I let people do trials and pilots without me and, you know, you can only do so much. However, over the last two years, I've done two separate funding rounds. Apologies, the Labrador has come in demanding attention. That was a clunk. I've done two separate funding rounds and those funding rounds have produced £400,000 worth of money spent on 10 LEPs who did some pilot work last year. And then I've got five million in the last budget. That's a lot of money out of taxpayers' money. And we split that three ways. We are doing a enhanced online version, working with the Money and Pension Service and DWP's versions and looking at what other people are doing. And secondly, we're doing loads of work with job centers and utilizing what's called the 50 plus choices campaign, which is putting it bluntly, trying to help people back into work who are over 50. And is an extension of what we've always worked on on fuller working lives. But the bit I'm most excited about is I've got a lot of money in government terms. You know, four million pounds is a lot of money. 
that I want to utilize to say to the private sector, come on, this is an idea that has been formulated at Aviva, at Hargreaves, at other companies, where tell us how we could do the best interventions. And I've got very strong ideas. And I, you know, basically, until someone tells me that the Aviva model doesn't work, that's by and large the version that I think is the best way. But I don't necessarily know that for sure, because the Aviva model is very much in-house, we're a very trusted provider, it's by a big financial services firm, you know, it was done in Norwich, where the Norwich Union has been around for years, and you could see why it would work so well. But I've got to make this work countrywide, because what I want to try and do is, I want to do a big commercial pilot that I can then go to Treasury, and I can say, make this a national thing make everybody between the ages of 45 and 50 have a midlife MOT and frankly make them have a midlife MOT at an earlier stage when you are 30 which is broadly when you're 30 most people will have either settled down married formed a civil partnership possibly looking towards children and houses and things like that depending on their circumstances but clearly they are making fiscal decisions and workplace decisions and health decisions all of which need to be addressed and we need to get people looking at their wealth, their work, and their well-being, and they're not doing enough. So I'm doing a lot on it. We're pressing it. But the key thing is large financial services providers love this, not least because it will make more people save more money in their pensions and have savings products and engage with large providers. But it, it is patently the case that even Aviva, to their discredit, sadly, are not really stepping up to the plate and going, yeah, come on, we can do this. We would take one of these contracts on and we will run one of these things and show you how to do it on a much larger level. And that disappoints me because the industry is really quick to criticize. Lord knows I'm aware of that when they don't think government is doing a good job. When government says, we will actually pay you taxpayers' money to show us how to do this even better and to roll out a product which you'll then probably get the benefit of, I'm... I think the technical term is pissed off that they don't uh, man up and sort it out. Okay, so there was a DWP procurement process that I think went through to you know, invite tenders for participation Correct. in the MOT project. So I, I'm really between the lines here that Aviva didn't step up for part of that project. For all the good that the... They may have done so. Well, hang on. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, they may have done so in the last three or four weeks. But okay. my, my point is I expected financial services providers to go, this is a really cool project for which, amazingly, we're going to be paid for by government to help formulate a policy that will really help us professionally in the longer term. And as early adopters, we could really make some money longer term as well. Now, Park of Eva's, their qualities or otherwise, very few private sector organizations stuck their hand up and said, mm -hmm. this is what we're going to do. Now, that procurement process, like all procurement processes, ongoing. And doubtless, I will get a phone call immediately after this podcast and saying, we've had 20 different providers who are queuing up around the corner and coming up with ideas and everything like that. Uh, at the moment, that doesn't seem to be happening. So just one more question on this, because the question that's always been in my mind on this is, well, Aviva was a benevolent employer that chose to implement this trial um, and I think did some good work around that. But in the long run, if you're talking about millions of people benefiting from a midlife MOT, and I agree with you, that would be a good thing. Who's paying for this? How does that get paid for? Okay, so my, I envisage some sort of treasury tax break of the broad cost of a midlife MOT to be recoverable against your corporation tax or your capital expenses 
and the company therefore pays for it. Company pays for it and then can offset it. That's how I envisage it. Okay, that makes sense. And that could sit alongside the model you talked about where you get the online services. and Yeah, um, and, and, so and also, you know, you can... Different so you can have different, levels. Different, yeah. Yes, of course. As of course. we do with PensionWise, to be fair. Exactly. Indeed. Okay, so... Another dimension of the pension engagement matrix is is the pension dashboard. We spoke about that last when we met in February and the, the wheels keep turning and we're heading towards everything starting to go online in July of next year. And Chris Curry and the whole pension dashboard team are doing their thing and clearing the way. Again, I probably should spend less time on Twitter, but I see lots of concerns being expressed from the industry. Oh, we're not going to be ready in time. You know, these data problems. We, we haven't yeah, it's not like they had any warning. I mean, it's really not like we've been discussing this for all over five years. You know, who knows? I may not be the minister by the time you, you actually broadcast this, but tough <laughs> is all I can say to that. I have zero, zero sympathy for those firms who have failed to do what they should do already, which is have their data in order for their members. And we have given them a lot of time. You know, if I had my way, we'd have gone a lot, lot quicker. But I have been guided by Chris, who I have a lot of respect for, and the dashboard team at DWP. And I'm not underestimating the massive task that is getting all of this up and running. And various things have complicated it from the cloud downwards. Mm. But in short, this is the right project. They need to get their data in order. And so many other things help the industry. And we're going to come to the member in a second if we have this data. So, you know, it's really hard to do small pots without proper data. But when we have dashboard data, that dashboard quality data, small pots become so much easier. And that saves industry a huge amount of money because you and I both know there are issues with small parts. So everything flows from them getting their house in order. And very, very big providers sat me down ooh, three years ago, at least, and said to me in an unguarded moment, which I definitely noted very well, we're just not going to spend any money on this until you pass the act. Fine. So it took me a while, but I passed the act. And and, and he said, then, then I've got to go to my board and get some money and they just don't regard it as core business. And I have zero sympathy with those organizations who have decided to spend money on something that they think is important when government has passed laws approved by the entirety of the House of Commons and the entirety of the House of Lords that is in the consumer's interests and, by the way, the industry's interests. And they, as a board, have chosen to spend money on other stuff that they consider sexy and fun or maybe important as well. And I've had that conversation with really big providers and I'm utterly unsympathetic to arguments for delay. Well, and the irony of it is, so I was on a call earlier on today with a an FCA regulated business who are now having to clear the decks to deal with consumer duty, which is going to take up quite a lot of their bandwidth over the next year. And I, I appreciate not all pension providers are come within the, the FCA's purview. But for those that do, you've got two projects to deal with now. You've got the pension dashboard and you've got consumer duty, neither of which can really be pushed any further down the line. No, and also bear in mind, if I stay in the role, and even if I don't, value for money is coming down the track. And there is 
significant changes that will happen with value for money. Yeah. And again, I'm aware that there's this good work going on within the DWP in partnership with TPR and FCA on that as well. You mentioned the member, you mentioned consolidation, you mentioned small pots. I think Andy Cheseldine and the, the working group on small pots have done done really good work in trying to sort of tease out, you know, what the question needs to be and then what the answers could look like. I think they found it pretty hard work in trying to initiate pilots. There was talk about master trusts, trying to do kind of member exchange type tests, which so far as I'm aware, haven't led anywhere. But, you know, we've got multiple layers of consolidation. We've got the small pots, we've got the scheme consolidation, which I know there's an agenda to try and push towards bigger, better run, better governed schemes. Talk a bit about that. How are we getting on with, okay. with, with, right. with both of those? Let me. So I met Andy by Teams yesterday with the department team and thanked him for all his great work. I don't agree that it is as negative an outcome as it possibly some people do. So this... October, we will be doing two things. We will be doing the call for evidence on small pots. And as I've explained to you before, but I'll give you the quick version, you do a call for evidence and a consultation, then you legislate. And what I wanted to do is I want to get to a situation prior to the 2024 general election, where we've done a call for evidence, we've responded to that, we've then consulted on what we're going to do, having listened to industry and everybody else. And then we have some statutory version that can be brought forward post the 2024 general election, whoever's in power. And that, to me, seems a very logical and sensible way forward. So that's what we're going to start in October. At the same time, Andy's member exchange pilot will be launching in October. Okay. And he doesn't have as many people as he would like on that pilot, uh, because some organizations who shall be nameless have decided they are struggling to be part of that. I am having robust discussions with said organizations to try and point out to them that would be ill-advised, short-sighted, and frankly, ill-advised and short-sighted would be the polite way of putting it. And organizations like Nest have to be part of this, I'm afraid. The idea that they are going to say, oh, it's too complicated is just not tenable, not acceptable. And so I'm getting involved and making the case to Brendan and the team at Nest and Zoe and the team at Nest that their reluctance to be part of the member exchange pilot is certainly surprising from a government point of view and certainly should be criticised, and I will be criticising them, but in a polite way and saying, you know, we just need to sort this. Because the alternative is, and this is the bit the industry hates, is then they get upset when I go, fine, if you aren't prepared to do this, then I'll just have to do stuff with or without you and I'll just crack on. So the whole purpose of the small parts working group was industry coming up with solutions and actually road testing those solutions without government weighing in and saying, all right, we'll do this. Because the moment we do that, everyone's going to get way more upset. So it is incumbent upon the industry to try and engage and sort this. And I personally believe that the member exchange pilot will be a lot better. Andy is utterly clear. Resolution of small pots post dashboard is so, so much easier. And I agree with him on that. On consolidation, the long and the short of it is I look back on my time in this and I personally believe I've been too timid. And you speak to Nick Sherry, he is unequivocal that you have to do effectively mandatory consolidation in all but name. And you have to do massive nudges and value for money tests that force consolidation. And the bit that I also 
I'm very much persuaded of. I wasn't before, but I now am. We need professional trustees. There's no question whatsoever in my mind on that now. And that, that there should be wholesale reform of the trustee situation. And Wholesale reform of trustees, okay. Yeah, and we need professional trustees. That's without a shadow of a doubt in my mind going forward. Do we get rid of member-nominated trustees? I think that's part of the conversation, but the collection of trustees has got to have a professional trustee. That so I think moving is away the from the well-meaning amateurs towards more exactly. of a, a Partly because, of also, you know, you can blame me because myself and DWP have made the life of a trustee much more complicated. You know, ESG, TCFD, a whole bunch of reporting obligations. And the person who I want to give massive credit to is Sarah Smart at the TPR. She is really driving forward a innovative thinking in this space. And I credit her foresight and her clarity of thought. And genuinely, I really feel we are working very closely together on that particular issue and can work very strongly together. And I think, you know, we need to make the position of a trustee a bigger and better thing. And you need professional trustees. Basically, again, look at Australia. These are professional trustees who are going to be handling very large amounts of money. And we need to make it a a situation where they are, you know, of course, they will be discussing and engaging with member nominated trustees. But at the same stage, who's going to be liable for all this stuff? And this is big stuff going forward. And alongside this, I know we've got a consultation paper coming out of your department on the value for money sometime sort of around November-ish. I think. November the 1st, if I've got anything to do with it. Okay, there we go. Uh, that's the data I've given to Joe Gibson and her team. And I've got an early draft coming to me very soon. I think before the 5th of September, certainly, of where we are on that. And it is very much on Australian lines. It is very much on outcomes. And costs and charges, while still a factor, will not be the driving force. And that is very much the, my strong view. And I think that's, I've now persuaded the department that's their strong view. Obviously, if someone brighter, better, or different of view takes over as the minister, then you know we'll see what happens. But value for money is the way ahead. And you know, in all things, DC, you have to ask yourself why are you know the greatest pilot project in the world is Australia? Why would you do stuff differently to them when you can learn all their lessons and learn their mistakes and listen to the people who've been party to it? Yeah. Okay, and that extends to and it's not the first time you I was going to say it's not the first time you mentioned Australia. That's something of an understatement. So this perhaps extends across to the retirement income space as well. Yeah, uh, totally. We, we, you've, you've got to have a responsibility to provide really clear pathways and decumulation, such that people have a all goes to the engagement as well. So. Long before I really understood the Australian system, and I wouldn't say I, I really understand it, but I've got a pretty good understanding now, it just struck me that there is so little engagement with the member in decumulation. And that's got to change. It's got to change in the brave new world of DC and diminishing DB. You've got to have really clear understanding of that. And we need the great... British public really engaged with that in a way that happens in America, in a way that happens in Australia. And we don't have that right now. That's the project for the next five years, in my view. Well, no, I absolutely agree with that. And that, of course, is this is not just a DWP TPR problem. This is something the FCA has been wrestling with ever since March 
2014. I'm not sure they have, frankly. No, I don't think they have. No, I mean, obviously, I have great respect for the FCA. They're lovely people. They're a very important arms length body. Do you really think that Andrew Bailey was wrestling with this particular problem with all his team? No, I don't think that was the case. I think they were aware that there was a problem, but I would have loved the FCA to have been pushing this much more than they necessarily have. And I think we are going to try and work together, which is very much what I'm trying to do on the Valley for Money, Mm. and try to be joined up, but also to try and drive forward a real assessment and appreciation of the complexities of retirement planning in the modern world. And that's something that we've got to do. We've got to be joined up government. Okay, now this might be an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So come back to consolidation. The question got raised again this week, I think in the context of the Conservative leadership contest about consolidation of regulators. Do you have any thoughts or comments around reorganising the whole regulatory function? So I, I can give the political answer and I can give the new father answer. The new father answer is one of the delights of having a baby and struggling to cope with constituency work and being a minister and dealing with all of that and going two or three times back into hospital is I've spent very, very, very little time on the leadership. And I respect and admire both the candidates who have emerged through the process. But I I literally saw, I think, a press clipping on, on this idea. Do I think that the FCA and the, I think they're talking about FCA and TPR being merged? So no, I, I, I haven't got any particular view on it, which is the political answer, and I'll believe it when I see it. The only thing I would say is this, is that as a minister in the Department of Work and Pensions who works, and trust me, John Glenn and I have really tried hard to work together, yeah. it is extraordinarily difficult for FCA, TPR, Treasury, and DWP to be on the same page. It really is. And that is wrong. And that is not joined up government. And I would love it if there was an almost, there is an unwritten rule as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't necessarily always work, that the FCA and the TPR work collectively and don't do announcements unless they are absolutely together. Now, I obviously breached that rule myself on stronger nudge because I just felt the FCA weren't being robust enough and I decided to do something stronger. And I'm unequivocal about why I did that following the passage of the Pension Schemes Act in the House and seeing all the scams that were occurring. But by and large, we've got to run government and arms bodies better and in a more integrated way. I'm really close to the TPR, but I'm not really close to the FCA, and they're not that interested in me, frankly. And they never have been. And it is hard to get the traction with the FCA that I would like to have because they don't report to me. They report to Treasury. Mm. And that's where the problem is. You've got different ministerial departments responding to different things. And the problem also with the FCA, in my humble opinion, it has an enormous, enormous bandwidth that it has to cover. And you and I know that everybody is critical of the FCA. You have to get to a situation where that the organisation that it is is able to work better with the particular requirements that it's being imposed upon it. And I think that's difficult. It really is. Would I merge the two? I'm not sure I'd merge them. I'd just have them working together an awful lot better. Okay, that's really interesting. Thank you. 
I can hear Zola is keen to yeah, Zola has wandered in, this conversation. in is, is very, very enthusiastic in support of the FCA, I think is what she's <laughs> trying to say, and has run in from the garden, having done a Zoom around the garden. I'm conscious you've been very generous with your time. I just wanted to come on quickly to state pension because uh, you've done a lot of good work around pension credit. And I'd be really interested in your thoughts on, is that job done? And where would you like to go next in terms of using that lever of the combination of state pension and pension credit to improve retirement incomes? So as a minister, it's really, really hard to play around with state pension and pension credit because they're such hot potatoes. And you've got to be really sure what you're trying to do as outcomes and then really able to sell what you're trying to do. I've taken the view, and I think it's the right view, that Steve Webb had done a bunch of reforms to state pension, Mm. and I shouldn't seek to undermine or change those. I should let them bed in. And by and large, the new state pension is clearly the right thing to do, and we should support that and push that forward. Clearly, We've inherited a number of long-term problems with assessments of some state pensions, which Steve and others and Stephen Timms had fixed them at the time, but these things happen. But DWP is clearing up those problems slowly but surely. The way in which the pension credit is dealt with has been fascinating and a lot of heavy lifting. But you start, in my view, with a fundamentally deficient product. I'm not sure there is a perfect product out there. But the the nature of the product is, as designed by Treasury, very much it's a Treasury product they designed, and Gordon Brown. It's it's got Gordon Brown's hands all over Mm. it, bless him. And I I like Gordon Brown. I wouldn't say we're friends, but I I really respect him tremendously and really enjoyed debating with him and talking to him in the 2010-15 Parliament. Mm. So pension credit is a Brownite Treasury creation of 20 years ago. Now, the whole problem with it is you've got to apply for it. And it's so complex that genuinely, a as Henry Tapper tells the story, you know, his mum living in a big house in London, but who was asset rich but cash poor, was entitled to pension credit. But somebody who has got a small private pension may not be so entitled. Now, trying to come up with a system to improve pension credit is really difficult because you've got to have a capability of supporting the most vulnerable that allows that degree of support to the vulnerable over and above state pension. And I totally get that and I continue to support that. But it is a really inefficient system, in my view, that there are a significant cohort of people who do not apply for this. Now, that's their choice as well in some cases, but getting people to know about it is difficult and because it's means tested, it's very expensive to run, it's really complicated, you know, there's a whole bunch of problems. I think what is patently clear to me, though, is that the campaigns, you know, I've done two pension credit awareness days in June of last year and June of this year. The campaigns definitely work to a degree. Having key triggers definitely work. And obviously, the BBC decision was a key trigger. But harnessing the power of local media. So I have written four times to every single local paper in the country and doing op-eds in local papers, really galvanizing members of parliament. You know, I've written to every single member of parliament repeatedly, trying to get them involved, drafting their own press releases. And, you know, over 450 members of parliament have punted out the effectively Guy Opperman DWP pension credit press release. 
And the difference that has made in terms of numbers in the last few months are off the charts. So the number of people applying is just astonishing right now. And I've now got the department saying to me, we're really worried that people are waiting too long to know they are successful or otherwise. And I, and I said to them, I had a meeting with them this week, I said, look, uh, yes, we obviously got to throw more people at our, our end to try and cope with the increased demand. And the increased demand is massive. But, you know, my glass is half full. We have successfully managed, along with Len Goodman, to galvanize the great British public to apply for pension credit. That's what we wanted them to do. Now, yes, we are struggling to cope with the workload, but basically we're dealing with a success. And, you know, it's what reform looks like a pension credit long term. I don't know. You'd, you'd want it to be automatic. And I think the, the holy grail comes from one way, which is this. You can only do proper reform of pension credit and to a lesser extent uh, other benefits once you have accessible data by the state that the state can then do that assessment. Now, we don't have that at the moment. So HMRC sharing info with benefits agencies, sharing info with others, and then a proper evaluation of Mrs. Smith at 43 Acacia Avenue is asset rich but cash poor or Mr. Jones down the road, you know, you can't do it on an automatic basis at the moment, whereas a state pension is automatic. Yes, we have occasional glitches and problems, but by and large, the system works really well. So you need proper data, and then you need the British public to agree to that data being accessed by the state or others to try and then see that there is an assessment of what you're doing. And I look in awe at people like the Indian government who have done this particular process. And I sat down with my opposite number in India a year or two ago, and he was fascinating about the fact that every single Indian basically has an individual data point and an individual capability of understanding his data, but so does the state. That's what happens when you start with a blank slate. We haven't got a blank slate. We are constantly uprating and upgrading our data around our organizations as best we possibly can. You know, I'm waiting for Make Tax Digital to happen in all its proper forms so I can then do automatic enrollment for the self-employed. That still hasn't happened yet. Yeah, clearly a lot of this sits sits beyond the DWPs. Of course, it's a cross-government approach to proper data management of an individual's data. And in this country, particularly pre-COVID, I think it's changed post-COVID a bit, But pre-COVID, we were really, really protective about that data. And there are, you know, there are think tanks and organizations from Liberty downwards who were saying, you know, don't let the state know too much about you. Now, the state can help you a lot. And you and I know that there are 20 to 25 percent of people entitled to pension credit who are not applying for it. Now, I would love the state to be able to do that for them but I can't do it on the data I've got. But slightly, it goes back to our dashboard point and our other point. Data is everything. And on once we have the dashboard data up and running, you know, we're, we're only now, what, two years away from things being really all singing, all dancing. There's an awful lot that's going to change in pensions thereafter. And an awful lot will be very positive. That sounds like a good note to finish on. So uh, I think we will. Guy, thank you very much. I'm going to let you get back to your wife and your baby and your dog. Thank you for talking to me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for all your support. And thank you for, I don't know when this is going to be broadcast, but if it is the case that this is my last podcast act, so to speak, it's been a joy and it's been a slice. Obviously, we may see you on the other side of September the 5th. Good stuff. Thanks, Guy. 
so there you go. By the time you listen to this guy may no longer be pensions minister, or quite possibly, with at most only two years to go, our new prime minister may decide to keep Guy on until the next general election. If that proves to be the case, I'm sure he will continue to bring the same energy and commitment to the job that he has for the past five years, apart from that 48-hour hiatus. Personally, I think he's done a great job. His focus has been the right one for the times we find ourselves in now, on how the pension system serves individuals, strengthening protections, simplifying data, driving consolidation, and above all, looking for ways to improve individuals' engagement with their retirement journey. Thanks for listening.